what is wrong with me? A 25-year-old woman went to her gynecologist in tears. I've been trying to have sex with my boyfriend and I just can't. It's like everything just seizes up down there. It's like hitting a brick wall. I talked to a couple of people, but I was just told to try to relax. But that's not helping. I mean, we were able to have sex before, but for the past couple of months, we've had no success with it. I know it's me. What's wrong with my body? Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alopi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Welcome back to another episode. Today, we're going to talk about something that is still so taboo that millions of women suffer from it in silence. It's painful sex. It's so unfortunate that this is still something we find difficult to talk about in society. I mean, I saw a Cosmopolitan article where women who endured painful sex talked about their sexual encounters anonymously. You know, and they said things like, am I destined to be a virgin? Do I not like men enough? What's wrong with my body? You know, and the one that really got to me, do I have less to offer than other women? These women are made to feel so alone because there's just such a stigma with talking about this. You know, and they aren't even alone. There isn't anything wrong with any of the women that are facing this today. In fact, there aren't any global estimates, but looking at studies and databases over the course of 14 years, female sexual dysfunction existed at a rate of 40.9% worldwide. 40.9%. That's huge. So why is female sexual dysfunction still something that gets misdiagnosed so often, or is just generally not as well understood? That's a great question. So if we just look objectively at the number of studies done on male sexual dysfunction versus female sexual dysfunction, there's a pretty huge discrepancy. So the number of studies done overall for male sexual dysfunction are 31,987. For female sexual dysfunction, 17,908. And if we look specifically at the different diagnoses, vulvodynia and vestibulodynia in particular, both of which we will be talking about shortly, they have a total of 892 studies for vulvodynia and 955 studies for vestibulodynia. And what about for male erectile dysfunction? Well, that has a whopping 26,182 studies. Yeah, the discrepancy is huge, but it is slowly changing, which is a step in the right direction. But, you know, before we get into the specific diagnoses, let's talk a little bit about the history of sexual dysfunction. We'll touch a little bit upon the history now and a little bit later. So let's start with something you might not be expecting, the history of vibrators. So let's think back to the first episode of the season where we talked about the word hysteria. As we know now, the word hysterical, as in calling women hysterical, comes from the word hysteria meaning uterus. And early healers thousands of years ago believed that women's hysteria, 
you know, that fatigue, insomnia, mood swings that they believe plagued women was possibly due to pent-up energy. And as a side note, physicians in the Victorian era of the 1800s believed that three-fourths of American women were at risk from hysteria. So starting as early as the first century, women were prescribed clitoral orgasm as a treatment for hysteria. Now, it's been debated in literature if this next part is true, with multiple sources stating yes and others saying no. But one thought is that women turned to doctors who cured them of a paroxysm with their hands. We now know paroxysm is, well, a sexual climax. Now, this got to be too time-consuming for doctors, and thus, with the invention of electricity, came the invention of vibrators. Joseph Mortimer Granville patented an electromechanical vibrator in the early 1880s as a way to relieve muscle spasms. That was its initial use. But then doctors began using it for other parts of the body to cure women of their hysteria. And also keep in mind that the diagnosis of hysteria at this time could be due to insomnia, epilepsy, sciatica, constipation, and more. So basically, it was considered the answer to all of women's ailments for centuries. And what we do know is that next came the invention of health spas offering vibration therapy, which, as you can imagine, was extremely popular at that time. So popular, in fact, that the demand was higher than the supply. So then came the invention of vibrators as an appliance to be purchased for the home. And in fact, it became an essential home appliance for women, along with the fan, tea kettle, toaster, and sewing machine. And it wasn't until the 1920s when Sigmund Freud finally identified the paroxysm, which we now know as climax, not until he identified it as sexual in nature, that the vibrators fell into disuse. When the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders finally removed hysteria as a medical diagnosis about 40 years ago, women could finally start to purchase vibrators again, and this time for sexual pleasure without as much of the stigma and without needing to justify pleasure as a medical condition. So when we really think about that, for thousands of years, women's behaviors and desires were rooted in a medical condition, that belief that there was something inherently wrong with them that needed to be corrected. So it's no wonder then that sexual dysfunction occurs so frequently in women. So getting back to that different diagnosis with female sexual dysfunction, there are many reasons why this happens. It could be due to lubrication issues, lack of desire or arousal, or painful sex. But Dr. P, doesn't it seem like a lot of those go hand in hand? Yes, they do. And I feel like it can be a vicious cycle. So lack of desire could lead to lubrication issues, and painful sex could lead to lack of desire, and back and forth. And there are so many reasons for any of those issues medications, medical illnesses like chronic illness or cancer, social factors religious beliefs, trauma, aging, and so many more. And when we look specifically back at painful sex, the incidence is still very high, 12 to 21% of women in North America. And the economic burden on the healthcare system is large too. A Canadian study estimated $25 million spent per year on treating chronic pelvic pain. In the United States for chronic pelvic pain, approximately $881 million is spent to cover the cost of direct health care and approximately $2 billion to have an overall cost. And that includes direct medical and indirect medical costs, right? So being absent from work also results in an economic burden. So as you can see, sexual dysfunction and pelvic pain in general 
really does affect our society more than we would expect. So getting back to sexual dysfunction, it's important for doctors to really understand the root of what is going on and for patients to be as open as possible. And since we're going to be talking about painful sex, I like to break it down in my mind into three major categories, vaginismus, dyspareunia, and vulvodynia. And we'll be defining each of these. Vaginismus. It's like hitting a brick wall. So I've heard this before and is exactly what the patient we described at the beginning of the episode was describing. So vaginismus is an involuntary contraction of the vaginal muscles that's been going on for six or more months. So it's basically a protective reflex your body is automatically doing. As far as we know, but studies are limited, this happens in 0.5 to 30% of women, so a huge range. Now, the only way to really treat this is to understand why it's happening. So let's break it down. There are two types of vaginismus, primary and secondary. With primary vaginismus, women have never been able to have penetrative intercourse. With secondary vaginismus, women were able to have penetrative intercourse before, but are now no longer able to, like our earlier patient. So in addition to this going on for six months, they should also have one of the following can't have vaginal intercourse on at least 50% of attempts, pelvic pain in at least 50% of attempts, fear of vaginal intercourse or of pain in at least 50% of attempts, and or tensing, tightening of the pelvic floor muscles during intercourse at least 50% of the time. So with a lot of women, this is first diagnosed when they're being evaluated for infertility, which makes sense. But it's important to know that it does happen in all age groups. And isn't it crazy how given this long criteria for diagnosis and the fact that there are different types of vaginismus, that women are told just to, you know, have a drink or just relax as though that's the simple solution. But let's go more into the differences between the primary and secondary types of vaginismus in a little bit more detail. So primary vaginismus is when there has never been successful intercourse. And this can be due to psychosocial issues like trauma, body image issues, negative messages about sex or sexual relations and their upbringing. But it can also be due to physical factors like abnormalities in the hymen. So it is important to see your doctor. Secondary vaginismus is where there has been successful vaginal intercourse in the past, but now inability for penetration. And this can also be due to a huge variety of reasons. So this can include infection, inflammation, scar tissue in the vagina from a vaginal delivery or surgery, or even endometriosis, lack of lubrication of the vaginal tissues, radiation therapy after cancer, and even a deficiency in estrogen and menopause. So it really could be situational and a particular trigger that's causing the problem. And then there's pain associated with this. So the body's now conditioned response is to protect you, to contract the muscles. And they can both also be due to vulvodynia or vestibulodynia, both of which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. So because there are so many causes and the cause for each individual patient is likely a combination of factors, the treatment can also be complex. So do you want to talk a bit more about this, Mira? Sure. So the treatment is really going to be a variety of different factors. So Kegel exercises are a great way to strengthen the pelvic floor but sometimes they can worsen pain too. So it's really important to talk to your physician. Diaphragmatic breathing, also known as belly breathing, can help relax the pelvic floor muscles. Vaginal dilators are another treatment. 
So the goal here is not to stretch the vagina, but rather to give the patient control to get comfortable at their own pace in their own home. And you can even put anesthetic cream to the dilators to make it more comfortable. Physical therapy and sex therapy can be other key treatments. With physical therapy, the goal is to treat pelvic floor dysfunction with trigger point releases and pelvic floor muscle exercises. And sex therapy is important to understand the anatomy and practice relaxation techniques so it can be done either alone or with a partner. And if the patient needs something more, vaginal Botox injections can be very effective to release spasms. So vaginal Botox typically lasts for about three months, so if the problem persists, Botox can be repeated every three months. All in all, the important part is to get help early so that the cycle of spasm and pain can be broken. So next, let's discuss dyspareunia and vulvodynia. I've seen these terms used interchangeably sometimes, and while both diagnoses have symptoms in common, they are completely separate disorders. Dyspareunia is painful sex with touching or penetration. So it's painful intercourse that is provoked by something. Whereas vulvodynia is pain that is without provocation, and that's pain that's actually lasting more than three months. So it is spontaneous and not necessarily associated with touching or intercourse. Now, both of these disorders can coexist with other medical conditions like endometriosis, interstitial cystitis, pelvic floor muscle spasms, and both of these disorders can also overlap with other pain syndromes like fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome. So let's talk about each of these separately. Mira, do you want to talk about dyspareunia? Yes. So let's start with the etymology of the word. So the word dyspareunia that women experience comes from the Greek dys, meaning bad, and prunos, meaning bedfellow or bedmate. In other words, a bad sexual partner. Clearly, there are some sexist roots of the word. But if you think about the symptoms, the main symptom is pain. In fact, the American Psychiatric Association's DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, argued that dyspareunia should not be classified as a sex disorder and should instead be classified as a pain disorder. And in the most recent version, the DSM has actually grouped dyspareunia under the diagnosis of genitopelvic pain slash penetration disorder. Now, getting back to its symptoms, dyspareunia is recurrent or persistent pain that is provoked and happens with physical contact or intercourse, either before, during, or after the actual intercourse. It can be superficial or deep. With superficial dyspareunia, the pain is localized to the vulva or vaginal entrance. So the tissue right around the vaginal entrance is known as the vestibule. So in fact, if the pain occurs where pressure is applied to the area, this is known as vestibulodynia, and it's a subtype of dyspareunia. The superficial pain can be associated with inflammation in the area, something like vaginitis. But the pain can also be deep. So the pain can be inside the vagina or the lower pelvis and can be associated with conditions like endometriosis, interstitial cystitis, pelvic inflammatory disease, and more. So let's go back to vestibulodynia for a second. I think it's important to note that this is a new term. It used to actually be called vestibulitis, but anything with the word itis in it means that there's inflammation. So that's what itis is if it's inflammation. But we do know that this isn't necessarily due to any kind of inflammation. More likely, it's because of sensitivity of the nerve fibers in the area. And so the physical exam on these patients can be completely normal. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. 
you know, this is an actually an important concept to understand that often with a lot of pelvic pain conditions, the physical exam is completely normal. So patients get told that everything looks normal, so we don't know what's happening with you. So it must be in your head. And that begins the cycle of frustrated patients, seeing person after person, getting no answers. Okay, I'm getting off on a tangent here. Back to dyspareunia. But in addition to superficial or deep, there's also primary and secondary dyspareunia. Primary is pain that occurs at initial intercourse, while secondary is pain that occurs after some time of pain-free intercourse. So in fact, a study on childbirth showed that women had dyspareunia at six months postpartum in the range of 17 to 36% of the time, but only brought it up to their doctor 15% of the time. So it's really important to bring this up early so it can be treated. Exactly. And the same goes for vulvodynia. So let's talk about that next. Like you mentioned, vulvodynia is pain that occurs without provocation, with seemingly no known etiology. And this is why it's so often mistaken for sexually transmitted infections, also known as sexually transmitted disease or STD. And because it's seen that way, it can be stigmatized the same way an STD is and be associated with promiscuity or poor hygiene. According to a Harvard study, only 60% of women affected with vulvodynia received an accurate diagnosis. And this was after visiting three different doctors. And if you're wondering why so many women receive an inaccurate diagnosis, I think it goes back to the discrepancy in the number of studies done on the subjects of female sexual dysfunction versus male sexual dysfunction. And according to some studies in the United States, 16% of reproductive-aged women are affected by this. And it affects all kinds of women, with the highest incidence being between 18 to 25. But it does affect all types of women, including all races and all ethnic backgrounds. The pain can be intermittent or it can be persistent and constant. For diagnosis, oftentimes, to test for the vulvodynia, a cotton swab is gently placed on several locations of the vagina to see if the pressure will cause pain. But doing that alone won't necessarily provide all the answers. Alby, do you remember the show Sex in the City? There was this episode I remember where Charlotte, one of the characters, is diagnosed with vulvodynia and put on antidepressants, and the rest of the girls make fun of her. I remember they're like, how do you know your vagina is depressed? It can't meet its deadlines. It always wants to go to Krispy Kreme. Oh my goodness, I do remember that episode. And at that time, I did think it was funny. But after learning so much more about this after I became a physician and seeing some patients suffer from this, I felt like that episode missed the opportunity to shed light on an underrecognized women's health condition. Exactly. So, you know, after that episode aired in 2001, the National Vulvodynia Association actually released a statement condemning the show, saying, Sex in the City failed miserably at portraying the serious and complicated nature of this condition, particularly when the show's gynecologist indicated that it's easy to treat. That, to me, was the most egregious error, honestly. The gynecologist gives her some antidepressants and says, this should get under control, as though there's just a simple cure when in reality, coming up with the diagnosis is difficult, let alone treating the condition. Since we're on the topic of treatment, let's talk about both of these conditions. Both dyspareunia and vulvodynia have a lot of overlap in how they're treated. You definitely want to avoid irritation to the vulvar area, so using 100% cotton underwear also using preservative-free or alcohol-free lubricants during sex, avoiding perfumes, dyes, shampoos, detergents, soaps, and even douching of that area. Basically anything that might further irritate the condition. And then there are also medications and hormones to consider, 
Mira, do you want to talk about that? And maybe also mention that Sex in the City gynecologist. Yeah, so you actually can use antidepressants as treatment. Basically, antidepressants are often used to treat pain. So not just this kind of pain, but many different kinds of pain. Any kind of nerve-related pain, really. Everything from pinched nerves in the back to conditions we're talking about today. And there are specific antidepressants that are used for pain because of the way they rewire the way nerve fibers transmit pain sensations. The dosing for antidepressants is completely different for pain than it would be for depression, with the pain dose being much lower than the depression dose. So when Charlotte in Sex in the City was being treated with an antidepressant, it wasn't because her vagina was depressed. It was because she was manifesting nerve-related pain that can be treated with antidepressants. Such a huge distinction. Exactly. And you can use other medications too, like topical hormones, anti-inflammatory medications, topical anesthetics like lidocaine cream. And then there are also injections that can potentially be done depending on how the pain manifests. Something you can see an interventional pain specialist who focuses on pelvic pain form. But it's important to note that the first line of treatment is always pelvic physical therapy and even cognitive behavioral therapy to help understand the triggers and help cope with them. And finally, surgery is an option if we're specifically talking about vestibulodynia, where that vaginal opening is painful. A vestibulectomy can be done to basically remove some of the tissue, and some studies have shown a success rate of 60 to 90% actually. One more note we haven't mentioned yet is how important it is for women affected by this to really give a good history to their doctor. It's so important to be honest and tell them about any triggers that you think may be causing or worsening this like any history with bowel or bladder movements, sexual history, psychological history, any history of abuse, really to get to the root of the problem, because that can go a long way in figuring out the best treatment. And it's rarely ever only one treatment modality that's going to help treat the problem. So the more we know, the more we can help. Absolutely agreed. And I think we've covered a lot here and hopefully given you something to think about. Thank you for joining us for this episode and tune in next time. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the Female Pain Docs for more content. Send us an email at thefemalepaindocs at gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.